It is just past 7 o'clock and a massive show in store for you tonight. Of course, it's time for Iron Sports. This is the True Oldies Channel. I'm Mike Balsamo, and week two of the NFL is in the books, Ira, and really the storyline from this is going to be not the, uh, you know, basically dozen 2-0 and teams, but just all the injuries. What what a terrible week, um, you know, for fans of the NFL all around, just by seeing uh, how many people went down, and we're going to talk a lot about this later. Yeah, but it's very sad. I mean, it's some of the big, if anyone has fantasy, the top two fantasy players, uh, Taquan Barkley and Christian McCaffrey, Taquan's out for the rest of the year, and Christian McCaffrey's going to miss some time. But it's not just those two. We're talking maybe over 21 top NFL players got injured. And after a first week when there were very few injuries, who were expecting injuries because they didn't have a preseason, it was very unusual to think them to come back in the second week to have the have more injuries than I think I can ever remember happening one week of the NFL. No, that yeah, this is definitely like a, a, black, a black Sunday across the NFL. Never seen anything like this. We'll talk about that more, though, and uh, talk about, like I said, a lot of teams at 2-0, and and then there's a couple of teams at 0-2 that look like their season might be over before it started. But first, got to talk a lot of golf, and we do have a great guest on the way. It's Mark Cannizzaro. Tell, him about, tell us about him. Uh, he's one of the longtime writers for the New York Post, uh, has a book out seven days at Augusta. Uh, we had him on a few months ago, just a great writer, and he's, he was out there. He's been out there covering the golf, so we'll get some in, um, analysis from someone who's walking the course with Bryson and Tiger and Phil and everything, so it'll be exciting to have him on the show. Okay, Ira, let's get into it. Bryson DeChambeau is your U.S. Open champion, and I got to tell you, Ira, this was not the most compelling major because he was just really, I, I know Matthew Wolf made it close, but really Bryson DeChambeau was in control here. And I, to me, it took the fun away a little bit that but towards the end, he was just pulling away. Well, it was the final, really, on Sunday. It was those final nine holes when, when there was a point where he was started Sunday two back of Matthew Wolf and uh, then just, just sped away. And Matthew kept going back, shooting a 65 uh, and finishing up. I mean, Bryson finished at, at my 600 par. And if you look at the rest of the golfers, Wolf was even. Uh, uh, Lou Olsen plus two. Harris English plus three. And then you have Dustin Johnson plus five. Uh, Justin Thomas plus six. Rory plus six. It would look like a normal U.S. Open if it weren't for Bryson at, at 600. I mean, to think that here's the number one world number one player in the world, Dustin Johnson, who's at plus five. Bryson finished 11 strokes greater than him at the U.S. Open. And, and, and of Rory also, 12 strokes ahead of Rory. Just simply amazing uh, great, uh, performance by Bryson DeChambeau to win the U.S. Open. So let's talk about um, let's talk about winged foot a little bit because this course now, you know, it, it's been being talked about all week and everyone is really saying, wow, this course is as hard as everyone says. And a lot of these golfers are, are like relating it to torture, having to play a couple of rounds here. Well, and you can see that the rough, the, the, the fairways were narrow. The rough was very deep, and uh, it, but it just—I mean, it was—it was funny though that the first day when Justin Thomas shot a 65, it was like, wow! I mean, suddenly the scores that first day were very, very low because they get 26 golfers uh, under par. But then that changed the rest of the week, and as you saw, and it looked like it, it, the course affected everybody uh, negatively except for Bryson, who decided that. I mean, the point is, we—we we read we're going to talk with Mark a little about this. We said, look, it's one thing to, for Bryson to be bombing 325 yards drive. And he led uh, the driving distance by almost 20 yards uh, over any other golfer at the, at the U.S. Open. But when the, in a normal tournament, when they, we don't have the rough, when you're not penalized for hitting out of bounds, and, not out of bounds, but, but certainly don't keep you in the fairway. Well, in this case, he doesn't hit hardly any fairways at all, and he still runs away with a victory, which just uh, is just shocking. Yeah, I think he had 28 fairways, which is the lowest in a U.S. Open win uh, in about 30 years. So absolutely crazy that you could win a tournament by six strokes, only hitting the fairway four times a day, Ira. Um, 
he was not the favorite here. And this could have been some good value in Vegas had you had the foresight to say, man, Bryson's set up for this course. Yeah, 25 to 1. I mean, we're, we're expecting, we've been following golf certainly all summer. Uh, Dustin Johnson, the John Rongs, the Justin Thomases, the Rory McElroys. But it's almost like watching a horse race. I think that besides Rom, who was sort of out of it from the beginning, it's just you're waiting for Dustin Johnson to make that run. Justin, Justin Thomas was in there taking the lead on the, in, the, in the first day, but, but just nobody but Rory same. They were in the positions to, to make a run, but they just never took the run. I mean, the only ones by, you know, there's only Patrick Reed, Bryson, and, uh, and Matthew Wolf were the only three golfers that really seemed to have a chance there because these other golfers, these other big names, the top golfers in the world, just had never made a run at, the, at, at Bryson. So let's talk about uh, how we got here, Ira. Yeah, I mean, I just think generally Thursday with, with, with JT shooting a 65 and uh, Patrick Reed shooting a 66. I mean, and then I was following Tiger the whole day, and I thought Tiger was in good position. I mean, it seemed like he was in position. He had three straight birdies at 9, 10, and 11, uh, and it seemed like he was, like, you know, going to have an even par. But then he had a bogey at 18, a, a, a 17, a double bogey at 18. Suddenly now he's at plus three. And that just messed him up. And then Phil Mickelson, who we're looking back from the time his 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 uh, failures uh, back in in the U.S. Open, and, and especially at Wingfoot, and he shoots the opening day at 79, so it takes himself totally out of the tournament. But I think that was sort of the story was filled out of the tournament, and Tiger really looked like maybe he's going to need a lot to come back and, and, and be competitive uh, for the rest of the way. But Justin Thomas shooting those low scores, but we never saw that. Thursday was completely and like any other day. Friday, Saturday, and Sunday scores were much much more higher. Yeah, so um, go ahead and get into Friday because, like, like you said, you were right. I mean, Thursday, I was like, okay, this was supposed to be like the hardest course in the world or one of them, and they're playing it pretty well. And then Friday and Saturday was not the case. Well, Bryson came out. He was morning. So if you watched early in the morning, he goes and he finishes at three under, and that's when Reed was like at, at, at five under and everything, and you're waiting for, uh, you're waiting for the scores. Like, you know, where is he going to be? And then, and then he eagled his final hole, uh, the ninth hole. But after that, I mean, it was just a complete disaster. I and mean, he ended up, uh, you know, besides Patrick Reed, he was in, in control of the tournament because JT uh, shot a 73. Um, Dustin Johnson ended up just shooting a 70 be a plus three. But it was like one of those things with a cut line at the Earlier day was four, and then it moved to five, then it moved to six. Uh, some people, like Fowler finished early, Ricky Fowler, who was in contention the whole day, but he made it by one stroke. Tiger was a complete disaster. He shot a 77. He missed it by four strokes. He was double bogeying. Uh, it was just a mess there uh, at the end. I mean, again, there was, you thought he could at least make the cut, and he wasn't able to. I mean, but surprisingly, like Colin Maricaro missed the cut by a stroke. Gary Woodland, last year's winner at the U.S. Open, I was at there at Pebble Beach. He didn't make the cut. Justin Rose didn't make it. And Jordan Spieth has shot an 81 on, on uh, Friday, not making the cut. Of course, Phil and Sergio uh, weren't able to make it. And then that brings you into Saturday, and that's where uh, Patrick Reed and Bryson DeChambeau were playing. I mean, the two, quote, bad boys of golf uh, were out there. And uh, it was one of those things where Reed started out. Uh, he, was at, he was at five under through nine holes, looked like he was in a, in a, in tied with Wolf. And then that final nine holes, he bogeyed six of the final nine holes, had two pars and a double bogey. He shot a 46 on the final nine. And at the same time, Matthew Wolf, uh, 21-year-old uh, from California, but out of Oklahoma State, was a national championship. We saw him earlier uh, when, this year. And uh, he, he had five birdies on his first nine holes, ended up shooting a third. 
cars the rest of the way, but but really put himself in the position where everybody else was going backward. Even Bryson wasn't really moving anywhere. You know, giving himself a two-stroke lead at the end of the day on on Saturday, which was uh, just a, it was amazing to see Matthew Wolf. I mean, we saw him at that tournament at Seminole when you had the Dustin Johnsons and the Justin Thomases and and the Rory's, and it was like, what's Matthew Wolf doing in this group? And everyone's like, what's Matthew Wolf doing out there uh, during when the when there was the COVID shutdown during that break at Seminole? And he played well. And then now you see why Matthew Wolf, at 21 years old, was in that group. I mean, he's, uh, he definitely deserves to be, be in this company. No, you're absolutely right. And yeah, anybody who was questioning who is this guy, was it just he went to Oklahoma State like Ricky Fowler. That's how he got in. No, he's got a bright future ahead of him. We'll be talking about Matthew Wolf a lot more. But he didn't have it on Sunday, Ira. And this is where we saw this is the difference between someone who's playing like Bryson right now and someone who's playing like Matthew Wolf or the rest of the world, the way Bryson was able to just turn it on on Sunday. It's funny that Matthew Wolf and Bryson Dijonville actually have a history. In 2009, at the 3M Classic, uh, he made an eagle on the final hole to beat Bryson by one stroke uh, to win the tournament, for his first tournament. And then at the Rocket Mortgage this year in Detroit, he had a three-shot lead going into the final round over Bryson, and Bryson was able to catch him. Uh, so you were thinking, wow. I mean, this is, and they were both playing the same way. Wolf was bombing. Bryson was bombing. I mean, Wolf only made uh, 12 out of 42 fairways for him, uh, two for 14 on Saturday. Uh, and he was like ranked 58. How about Matthew Wolf was 58 out of 61st in driving accuracy, and he's leading the U.S. <laughs> Open. Uh, but I think what happened on I mean, it was like one of those days. I'll tell you what, Sunday was so hard because I'm trying to watch football. They start early. Usually the U.S. Open, if you remember like last year at Pebble Beach, that started, I mean, it went on to like 10 o'clock at night because it's in the West Coast. But because of the, it gets darker early, they actually have to start like at 1.30, so it runs into football. So you're trying to watch football. You're trying to watch uh, golf. It's just everything's going on. Um, I think the key was that Wolf, he bogeyed for he bogeyed at part at the, the third hole, and when Bryson on the fourth hole tied him. So, so suddenly the five goes to they're both tied. Then he bogeys uh, five, Wolf does, to go back one. And then on nine, uh, Bryson had a, uh, had a 35-foot eagle putt put it in. And Wolf, though, matched him with a 20-foot eagle putt. You're like, okay, you think he's still in there because he's only just that, that, that one stroke back. Uh, at, after nine holes, you know, like Wolf can still be in contention. But on 10, just a terrible drive. And you saw that one stroke where Wolf tried to almost have like a baseball swing out of, <laughs> out of a, a sand trap. And he, and he fell down into the, in the trap. He bogeys that. Bryson then birdies. And then after that, uh, Wolf made uh, bogey on 14, a double on 16, ended up shooting at 75. And Bryson just runs away. You know, waiting for those. We've had so many of these majors with this great final round where there's like anything can happen. I mean, really after like the 13th or 14th hole, this was over. And it was, at first you thought it was just going to be a two-day game. No one else made a run. I mean, we're not mentioning other people because hey, Louis Osthausen and Harris English, they were back at like plus two, plus one. They never sort of could make a run at this. Uh, and it was sort of just Bryson and Wolf as sort of a match play competition. And sometimes in these match play competitions, the one golfer just runs away with it. All right, Ira, let's go to Mark Canizaro here on Iron Sports. This is Ira from Iron Sports. We're talking to Mark Canizaro, the famous New York Post writer, also author of, we had him on a few months ago, about seven days in Augusta, which is coming up in uh, November. So thanks a lot, Mark, for coming on Iron Sports. No problem, Ira. How are you doing? Doing great, doing great. Well, you've been really lucky this weekend. I've been reading your stories in the New York Post about your coverage of the U.S. Open, uh, and this must have been great, exciting to be out there and seeing Bryson DeSambo to take on Wingfoot and destroy it. Yeah, it was pretty eye-opening, Ira. I mean, uh, you know, it's interesting. All conventional wisdom leading into the tournament told you that 
that the winner was going to be hitting fairways and, uh, you know, be a, the most accurate driver was going to have the best chance to win. And, and Bryson basically came in and said, you know what, I'm going to bomb it with my driver. Um, I'm not going to worry where it goes. If it's in the fairway, great. If it's not, I'll be down close enough to, you know, to where I can hack out a nine iron or a pitching wedge or an eight iron under the middle of the green. And, uh, and his philosophy, his strategy worked. Uh, his short game was, was brilliant. His putting was, was fantastic. He ranked number one in putting for the week. And, uh, it all worked. It came, it all came together for him. And it really kind of, it was total anti-establishment golf in terms of the way you 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 feel like the USGA wants its winner to uh, to win a you know to take to capture a U.S. Open, and uh, he completely just you know went against conventional wisdom and it worked. And uh, you know you have to wonder if it's, that's a trend right now because length obviously has always been a massive advantage in golf, and, and and if anything, what Bryson has done bulking himself up and adding all the weight and, and the uh, swing speed and length off the tee now, uh, it just, you know, I have a hard time not believing that, uh, you know, this has become a trend, you know, that the kids are out there now learning how to play golf, you know, the way they used to want to do what Tiger did. Now they want to do what Bryson is doing. Well, they said about what Rory, when Rory made the comment is during the uh, summer season, as they say, after that, when he, when he added all that bulk and all that length, they're like, it's one thing to do it at the Rocket Mortgage Classic when the rough is, is like an inch deep or it's very easy to hit. But when you get to the majors, that's where the problem's going to come. You saw Bryson had trouble this year at the, uh, at the Tour Championships and the, in the FedEx Cup Playoff Series. So he didn't really, I mean, he was 25 to 1 going to this tournament, but he totally turned on you know, expectations on top of their head by going full bore at, this, at the U.S. Open. Yeah, he did. And, uh, you know, I mean, listen, I, I, I know Bryson addressed the tour championship. You know, the grass there was, you know, he wasn't hitting it well out of that particular Bermuda grass. And, um, you know, but it, it's interesting. I, I remember when he first came on the scene, uh, you know, the first tournament back when the, when the tour restarted. And uh, I was at the Colonial in Texas. I covered that tournament. It was... It was the first tournament with no fans, which we've been getting used to now. And, um, you know, that was kind of everybody's first look at Bryson, you know, since the pandemic pause, so to speak, of three months when everybody was at home. And and it was eye-opening. You know, it was like, wow, how, how did this guy get so big so fast? And he was just bombing it all over the place. And Rory is a very long hitter, as you know, and so is Dustin Johnson. And uh, it looked at some points where, you know, he, he he was blowing tee shots past those guys, and they're looking at each other going, whoa, what just happened? So it's interesting. I'm sitting here right now writing a column for tomorrow's New York Post, uh, kind of looking ahead to Augusta and what, what Bryson might do to Augusta National in, in you know, in in November after what he just, I mean, he just dismantled wing foot with narrow fairways and, and gnarly rough, and now he's going to go to Augusta where there's essentially no rough and the fairways are pretty wide and generous and obviously and and he's been putting great so you know you throw all those things together and it's hard not to look at him as a massive favorite to win the Augusta yeah I mean it was it was certainly I just think that that was what are the other golfers when you're out there talking to golfers and we see the public quotes that they make about him and he's not the most I mean it seems like Tiger likes him Tiger Hanks always does all the right things about 
but it's you know he's someone who is has an abrasive personality. I've been I've been there walking with him sometimes, and I've seen yell at spectators more than any other golfer. Um, but and he's also plays slow. But what do the other golfers see? Think about this and see this because it's such a such a massive change in terms of how we view golf. Well, I think for the most, I mean, listen, Bryson's always been a bit of kind of a quirky California quirky guy, and uh, <laughs> you know the mad scientist vibe and all that. I think that the I think guys are kind of fascinated by him and and curious. Um, I know Phil Mickelson, you know, has spoken to him a little bit. I know Tiger's taken a liking to him. Yeah, I mean, he's he's rubbed some people the wrong way a few times. Obviously, he got into a little bit of a spat with uh, with Brooks Kepka with the slow play, um, you know, and. Uh, you know, that's been an issue. And, and you know what? I think, frankly, to be honest with you, Ira, I think it didn't help uh, Matthew Wolf yesterday in that final round because Wolf is a guy that likes to play fast. And as somebody who can relate to that, because I'm kind of a hit-and-run golfer myself, when I, get, when I get paired up with somebody that's slow, it's difficult. It Really, it's hard to keep your concentration. It's just hard to keep your patience. And so there is an element out there because of how slow he does play, particularly around the greens, uh, because he's just calculating all this stuff. You know, his mind is like a calculator. It's kind of crunching in numbers and spitting them out. And, uh, you know, you know when he's out winning a U.S. Open, it's hard to really criticize him. But, you know, it, it is it, – there's mixed feelings, you know. I mean, he's kind of a love-hate guy. You know, I think a lot of people, um, you know, look at him as somebody, you know, he, who's, who's a – he. I mean, you know, Bryson could be a very friendly character. I mean, he's – I know for a fact because I've got some friends that are involved with some charities that he is uh, that he's donated his time to, and he is passionate about giving, you know, off the golf course and things like that of his time and 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 uh, and whatnot. So I, you know, it's it's hard for me to dislike him when I know those things about him, but I also don't like the way he takes ten minutes over every putt. It seems like you know, <laughs> even if it's an eight or ten footer, um, but that said, he's the he's the guy with the U.S. Open trophy right now, and. and Nobody else has it, so I think there's a there's a, there's an element of respect there for for what you know from the from his peers from from what he's done and transformed his body, and they see how much he works out there. I mean, I'm sure you saw some of the some of the television clips, you know, of him you know beating balls under the lights on Saturday night at the practice range at Wingfoot because he didn't like the way he hit his driver in the third round on Saturday, and you know that that took place pretty much every day. I mean, he was the last guy off the off the practice range, so. You know, I, I've gotten some texts, you know, some emails from readers of, oh, he's a cheater, he's doing steroids, blah, blah, blah. First of all, there's no proof of that. And second of all, unfortunately, that's our society that we live in now where we just automatically think that everybody that bulks up or hits more home runs or pitches faster or whatever whatever it may be uh, is cheating, you know. But I have no evidence to that. And I, I, what I see is a guy that's worked his ass off, to be honest with you, and, and, and I think there's respect amongst the peers for that. And you mentioned a, a few minutes ago about the lack of fans. Um, from television perspective, I mean, I haven't been out there. You've been out there and seen it in person. From television, it doesn't appear like I am enjoying it. I think the fans, are, the ratings are great for golf. So it's one thing that they really did want to have the commissioner getting golf back fast and has done well. But in terms of being out there when you're on the course, what do you notice from the, from the ability that, that you know, there's no fans out there and, and, and how does it affect the golfers? It's very flat. I mean, you know, it's, you know, Rory was very transparent about it. You know, about a month or two ago, just admitting that he was he was having trouble focusing with no fans. You know, because it just we you know the intensity wasn't there, and you know that's things that all of these guys have had to try to adapt to. 
And you're right. I think on television, you know, and, you know, I, I've covered now five or six of these events now, um, but I've also watched some of them on television, and I think it comes off great on television. I think, Ira, what I am most interested to see how it's going to come off with no fans is at Augusta, because I think the Masters is a place where those roars and the you can you can feel it through the TV screen, um, the you know the, the vibe at, at Augusta National. Um, you know, I think you felt it a little bit maybe this week, you know, for the U.S. Open, because particularly because it, it was in, it was in New York, and the New York crowds are pretty boisterous and vociferous, and um, you know they become a part of the of the fabric of, of the major championships that are played here in this area. Um, but again, you know, you watch most of the tour events, you know, unless you're Tiger Woods or Phil Mickelson or, or Rory or now Deaton up Bryson or whatever, or those handful of stars. There's not a whole lot of people following some of these other guys around anyway. There's not a bunch of guys following Brian Harmon around the golf course, you know, no offense, <laughs> or Billy Horschel, whomever. Um, so to see not a lot of gallery on the other side of the ropes doesn't seem that abnormal. But I think at Augusta, when, you, when you're going to see the empty, well, I, don't, I guess they're not even going to have grandstands at Augusta because they won't put them up. But it's just going to be, I think Augusta is going to be weird to watch on TV. I think of all of the tournaments, the two that I thought would be affected most web no fans would be the Ryder Cup, A number one, because the, because the, the crowds there are such a fabric of that, you know, because it's so partisan, and and a Masters and Augusta, because those roars are just something we've come gotten used to, and I think that's going to be as as used to it as I am now. I've been covered two majors, the PGA Championship in San Francisco, and now this U.S. Open without fans, and how weird it is, how quiet it is. I think it's really going to strike me most, most of all at Augusta in November. I think it's really going to hit me there. We're talking to Mark Cannizzaro of the New York Post, who has an author. If you're looking for a great book about uh, the Masters, Seven Days at Augusta, um, just a couple more questions. In, without the fans, do you think that's helped the younger golfers, the Matthew Wolves, the Colin Morikawas, who have been playing amateur golf, as we just said, usually in amateur golf, there's, there's only their families are following them around. Um, does, has that, or when they're in college, their uh, college teammates, do you feel that they get a benefit because of they don't have the pressure of, of those big galleries? You know, Ira, th- that was a question that we mulled a little bit, certainly leading into yesterday's final round with Matthew Wolf holding a two-shot lead. And didn't seem to help him there because the pressure was there <laughs> and he didn't, you know, he didn't play his best. Caught a couple bad breaks. Bryson played extremely well, and you know once he kind of overtook him late in the front nine, I think that rattled Matthew a little bit. So I don't really know that it was a major factor yesterday, but you know you could certainly make an argument that you know that there's less pressure with no fans there because you're not hearing stuff. I thought if anything, where it might have helped a couple of players might have been Saturday when Bryson was playing and it was paired with with. Uh, Patrick Reed, because both of those guys are polarizing figures. And, you know, if, if you had your typical New York crowd out there, I'm sure those guys would have heard a few salty comments or, you know, cynical things from some of the, some of the fans. So um, maybe that would have helped them a little bit. But, uh, yeah, it's hard, it's, really, it's hard to measure. Each golfer is different. Um, and you're right. I mean, you know, the, the guys that are the young guys, you know, the Matthew Wolfs and the Hovlands and, and whatnot, uh, Morikawa. You know they're coming off of playing college and amateur golf, and they're kind of, they're kind of used to that. But you know, I'm not sure that that helps helps them. And then one and one final question you have to ask about Tiger. I mean, he 
I was, you know, following them all on Thursday, and he seemed to have a good round, and then he had the bogey and double bogey to final the, the round, and then certainly Friday fell apart. Um, how does he look? How does he feel? How does it coming into the Masters in a couple months? Uh, you know, he can pull out anything, so there's nothing, you know, <laughs> that would surprise anybody. But how did he look out yeah. there uh, with the course? I've, you know, I've never been one to bet against Tiger, uh, but I will say this. Uh, I have been pretty unimpressed with what I've seen um, out of him um, in these last few months since, since golf got started again. Um, he hasn't he hasn't contended at all. Um, he's just doesn't. He physically seems to be fine, but he just doesn't seem to be doing anything particularly well. Um, so I think that I'm not at this point expecting a ton out of him at Augusta, although I would think that Augusta would certainly rekindle his, you know, his game and his mentality and his vibe a little bit, just because, you know, obviously he's coming back there as a defending champion and he's won it, you know, multiple times. But I, I, I just don't really like what I've seen out of him. I certainly didn't like anything I saw out of him at, 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 uh, at, at Wingfoot this past weekend. I mean, or this past week, I should say. He didn't make the weekend because... I just, you know, he was struggling to make birdies. You know, I mean, when he had a chance to kind of make a run and make the cut with a couple birdies, he just he couldn't couldn't summon up. You know what we were used to Tiger summoning up. You know what I mean? He seems to have lost his superpowers, which is understandable. He's forty four and he's and he's, you know, multiple back surgeries in. But you know, again, I I walked out of the grounds on Friday night after after writing, and I. I thought about Tiger, and I thought to myself, like, you know, I thought to myself, I wonder if he's ever going to win another tournament again, period. I don't know, because he doesn't play that much either, remember, you know? He just doesn't get out there that much. I've always felt like he hurts himself because he doesn't get enough tournament reps because he plays so infrequently. But, you know, in fairness to him, he, he has to manage himself, you know, himself physically as well because, um, obviously, with his back, you know, we don't know what's going on physically. I never questioned an athlete. And his, and, his, and his injuries or his physicality and whatnot. So you have to kind of wonder, you know, I wonder if it hurts him that he doesn't play often enough because he just doesn't play that much. And you can't expect to turn up at wing foot this past week and, you know, and light it up, you know. And, and, and I, don't know how many, I don't know how many times, if at all, he's going to play before Augusta. I mean, I suppose he'll play somewhere maybe, I guess. I don't know, but... Um, It'll be interesting to see how that unfolds, but yeah, it, we're, we're Augusta's around the corner, and and his form is not there right now. Well, I, I encourage everybody. We've been talking to Mark Canizzaro. Uh, his book Seven Days in Augusta was the best books I've ever read about the Masters. And uh, you, you know, I, I subscribe to the New York Post down in West Palm Beach, but you go online at nypost.com. He's one of the best golf writers out there. And and so, Mark, and hopefully next year, we talked about this last time. I hope you come down for the Honda Classic. I mean, get your work on that. Hopefully, we get fans back there. We have a great tournament. You know, all the golfers are here, and the, the new schedule after the players. Hopefully, people will still play. Will play in it. But uh, we'd love to have you come down to West Palm Beach to uh, to come to the Honda Classic next year. Well, I certainly hope to be down there, Ira, and I hope, I hope we get some fans out there, you know, soon as well. I think I think they're going to start slowly incorporating that into, you know, the PGA Tour. I think they're going to start slowly bringing, you know, you know some fans back. Um, you know, you're going to start to see that, I think, in the coming months, uh, hopefully. But, you know, when we get back to complete normal normalcy, um, who knows? Well, again, thank you so much for coming on. I know you're really busy, and I appreciate you coming on Iron Sports.
Thanks for having me on, Ira. Be well. You're listening to Iron Sports 95.9, the true oldies channel. Mike Balsamo here as well. Great stuff there from Mark Canizzaro. Always welcome here on Iron Sports. Okay, Ira, let's change gears. And we know that you're a big Heat supporter. And I'm on the Heat bandwagon for this year. Didn't really see this coming. But here we are, Ira. It's two games to one. Miami was had a 2 nothing lead over Boston with their shot to go to the NBA Finals. Let's talk about how we got here because it's been a great series so far. Yeah, it's been close games generally, and um, I'm nervous, though, because I felt like it's like he got that 2-0 lead, and the last loss was just tough, and now there's this break, and you're starting to get a little... I'm, I'm, I'm still confident the Heat are going to make the NBA Finals, and I, but I, I mean, that first game, just tremendous. 117-114, Miami at overtime. The Celtics had been 100, and we're going to give stats during this show that, like, a million than one, because we saw what happened in the Atlanta uh, Cowboy game. But there are some amazing statistics. Those have been 156 and one. They've been won 92 straight playoff games when leading by 12 or more points going the fourth quarter. Well, they ended up losing. The, the the Heat were able to come back, and it was like that game was just just a, just a, a, an amazing game in terms of how it was it, it was done. And uh, I just and, and of course the, I mean the key of this game was that is that you know Bam Adebayo and it, we talked about how he was going to make a difference in the in the series and how really the Celtics had no one to guard him on offense and really on defense he could just run and, and just do whatever he wanted i mean you saw and you saw in, in the in the first game uh tyler hero making i mean like people have a follow the heat you know national nationally are looking at this and like where's this tyler hero what he's 21 years old he's from kentucky and he comes in and, and he hits you know they're you know they're they're uh they're they're you know i think the key point of the game was that uh Celtics were up 94-90, and Kemba Walker was fouled on a three by Drogic, but they did a coach's challenge, and it was a few minutes to go in the game, and they reversed it. It's like one of those things where, you know, you see a reversal, and I think that allowed then the Heat, then they turned that into a uh, hero hit a three, hero hit another three, and, uh, um, and, then, uh, and then at the end of the game, you know, Tatum had a shot to win the game with a three, but he missed for the Celtics. And then you're getting into overtime. You're like nervous. Like, okay, now we're going to be in overtime. Uh, Celtics that look good against Milwaukee in that overtime. What's going to happen? And of course, the key to the game was 116, 114. Jason Tatum drove to the basket and, and Bam blocked the shot. Amazing block. It just, and you know, like call it one of the greatest blocks of all time. Uh, and, uh, and then the, and it was, it was interesting day with uh, two seconds left. The Celtics did have a chance and they threw that, they threw a ball down to Tatum. I mean, people talk, talk about the block. But then, remember, they threw the ball down at the end of the game, almost like Christian Leitner, Grand Hill style, and he just missed, Tatum just missed a 29-footer 29 29 to win the game. But, but an overall great game by the Heat, and uh, certainly from Bam out of Iowa, 18 points, six boards, nine assists, two blocks, and a foul. Uh, and only one, what I mentioned, one foul, which is he was doing everything on the court and only got fouled. And the Heat just get the, just the balanced scoring from Crowder. Uh, Drogic had 29 points, Butler 20 points, uh, I think, and they made 16 out of 36 threes. Uh, but just a big win for the Heat for that. And to get that first win, that was key. And, and so that was great. And, and that led in then to the uh, game, too. Yeah, and going, like you said, it was huge to get that first win. The Heat had only lost one game in this playoffs going into that series. So it was nice to get out there and get on top like they had on every other series. Game two came around, Ira, and it was another one where the Heat had to pull every trick out of their, uh, out of their bag of tricks. But they got the win. 
Right. I mean, it was like it was it was a crazy game because the Heat are down. I mean, we're seeing these runs in the NBA now. Maybe it's without fans and on you're seeing with Denver coming back against Utah, Denver coming back against the Clippers. But the Heat are down by 17 points. They're trilling by 13 at halftime, and uh, they were. And, and I think they've been the Heat. The Heat record have been over 21 in games where they've 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 trailed by 13 or more at halftime. And they come out in the third uh, quarter and they go on a 31 to 17 uh, run. Uh, just 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 totally dominating there in that third quarter. And then the Celtics went back on a 15-2 run and went up 94-89 with, uh, with four and a half minutes to go. But boy, the different, you know, their the, the finishing lineup of Bam, uh, Butler, Draja Crowder, and Hero, you know, making a 13-1, on, 13-1 run to finish the game out. Uh, just amazing. And then you saw what the Celtics happened. Uh, Marcus Smart and Jalen Brown had a fight. I mean, they were yelling and screaming. There's all this fighting in the, in the Celtic locker room and in terms of how they were playing and how they were doing defense. And, and you saw people questioning what the Celtics were doing and their defense was poor and, and it seemed like this bolster was out coaching Brad Stevens. So you're getting confident. Like, wow, I mean, this is, uh, you know, because a lot of people game too. I mean, I, I talked to everyone. They're like, oh, I, I'm, I'm sure the Celtics are going to win. Everyone was betting the Celtics. And then for the Heat to come in there and get that 2-0 series lead, I mean, that was crucial. And, uh, and it just, and, and, and you see the Celtics fighting and arguing and it's supposedly Stevens, their coach, was meeting with the team until like three or four in the morning uh, after a game that they had the next day off. But just going over things and you're like boy the Celtics this could just all unravel for unravel for them uh, going into game three no you're, you're exactly right going into game three all I'm hearing is is Brad Stevens going to get fired? You know, Brad Stevens on the hot seat here, down two games to nothing. Game three, they came back though, and it was to be expected. There had to be a correction, and we did end up seeing that in game three. Well, I think, you know what, Gordon Hayward has been hurt the entire playoff series. Remember, Gordon Hayward was a star at Utah, then he came, came over to, uh, uh, then he, he was played under Brad Stevens at Butler. There was a whole issue. He got hurt his first game for the Celtics, and it's always been a battle, but this year he, he played well. And then he gets injured, his ankle, in the, uh, the first, uh, I think, game of the, of, uh, when they were back in the bubble. Then he's out for almost for all the playoffs. And he came in and played 30 minutes. His numbers weren't that amazing, like, oh, my gosh, he scored a zillion points. But the fact was that he just it gave the, the Celtics a better rotation. Their bench, he was able to help out the bench side and not tire them out because if they've now blown two leads, I think they were tired. I think they were trying to outplay. So Hayward getting that 30 minutes was 30 minutes that they really couldn't, uh, uh, you know, they could use because they were up again. And at halftime, 62 to 50. And, and still, I mean, without Tyler Hero, who scored 18 points in the first half, they would have never been in this game. But the second half was a complete disaster. The Heat were down by 20. Um, at some point, they, you know, they cut it to nine. But it was just, it was, it was like one of those games where they were sort of out of it, uh, out of it to the, for most of the game. I mean, it, the score was a little closer, but it just like everything went right for the, for the Celtics. Brown at 26, Tatum 25, Walker 21, uh, Smart 20. But uh, the, the Heat, just nothing like, you know, Olenek who usually was coming in giving some good minutes. He was 0 for 6. Uh, but uh, it was just like Crowder and Drogic were both 2, and 10, sh- two for 10 shooting. Uh, it was like one of those weird games, but look, you expect it. I've said the Celtics are really, really good, but that's what leads up to... Now, it's weird. The NBA, at the last minute, they were supposed to play tonight. This was going to be game four, but they decided because they didn't want to go against Monday Night Football, they moved the game till five. So they're taking like an extra game. And let's see, let's see if this gives a chance to Heat to regroup or does it give the Celtics a chance to get, you know, get even more rested and get Hayward a chance to get healthier, to, to be more of a factor in the series. But they don't play. They're going to play the Lakers play tomorrow. And then there's no game tonight. And then they still just play Wednesday, Friday, and Sunday and finish out the series. Yeah, game three of that Eastern Conference Finals, as Ira said, will be on Wednesday night. Um, 
Um, okay, Ira, before we could talk about the Western Conference Finals, which uh, L.A. does lead 2 to nothing, we have to talk about the Clippers and Nuggets series because nobody saw the Nuggets beating this team, especially down 3-1 to one in the series, and here we are, and they're in the uh, Western Conference Finals. I'm going to tell you, I, I, would, I have it on my Twitter page, I run sports, Facebook, I have it on, and Instagram. There's a video clip. At Game 5, the Clippers were ahead 56-40. They're up 16 points in the first half with 50 seconds left. They were destroying the Nuggets. They were up 3-1. They're up 56-40. And at that point, Marcus Morris just, just shoved uh, uh, Paul Mills' hat for the Nuggets. And then after he shoved him, there was like this pushing and shoving. You see him talking to him. And it was like one of those plays where you expect, oh, it's going to be a double technical. But supposedly, now I don't know exactly the words were said, but it was very bad. And whatever was said about Mills, like you're over the hill, you're done, like you and your team, you should just retire, that type of language. And that, after that, Millsap comes out the next, I mean, they only gave a technical to Morris, not to Millsap, even though they were both pushing and shoving and yelling at each other. And it's weird that they would only do that. But that's somehow, I think that's what fired up this, uh, this Nuggets team because they came back that second half. Millsap scored 13 points in the quarter. They end up winning game five. They end up giving six. And then in game seven, uh, it's just, as somebody who has been so critical of load management and everything, because I'm in L.A. a lot, and I'm out there, and I want to go see a Clippers game, and I don't know if Leonard's going to play. I don't know if George is going to play. And they're like, don't worry, we're doing this because we want to win a title. And you hear people say it doesn't matter what they do because it's only for the playoffs. They're resting. They're resting everyone. Uh, but it didn't work out. And, and as someone who has not been on the Kawhi Leonard bandwagon, who's been against this whole load management, and who feels that when everyone says he's the best player in the NBA, I have doubted this from day one. I do not believe Kawhi Leonard. I think that two years ago, what people understand, when he won the MVP of the finals, he was the third leading scorer between Duncan and Ginobili. He, was, he, was a, he played well in the finals, but he wasn't carrying the team. Last year, do you really think he would have won the finals if Kevin Durant was, would be an MVP, or they would have won if Kevin Durant was healthy, healthy or even if Clay Thompson was healthy. So I think this I think well, Kawhi Leonard is a is an all star player, a very good player, but he's not the best player in the NBA. And I was just I'm almost I hate to see when players do well, but I love when the Nuggets do well. And I just think they, they I think that the Clippers who had been beating up Dantic and who were playing rough house basketball and who really I just I just do not like how they play. I think they're overconfident. It was great to see Kawhi Leonard go six for twenty two, two for seven from threes. He did not in a game seven. We're talking game seven. O for O from the line. Paul George, four for 16, two for 11 from three. O for one free, O for one with five turnovers and 10 points. So Leonard scores 14, George scores 10 points, and it was a complete disaster. They get totally, they're up again. They were leading this game, they, in the, in the, and they were, they, were, they were leading it just by two in the first half and get totally blown out, 28 to 18 in the third quarter and 22 to 15 in the fourth quarter. I mean, to score 33 points in an entire half of a game seven when Jamal Murray scoring 40 points and Jokic has 16 points, 22 rebounds, 13 assists. Just a complete disaster, and, and I really put, it comes down to Doc Rivers. He's now blown three one leads uh, when Orlando against Detroit, the Clippers when he had Chris Paul, Blake Griffin, uh, and Chris Paul and DeAndre Jordan, and with the Celtics he actually blew a three two lead like, when he had a chance to win the, one of the NBA Finals. Um, but I, for someone, for me, this is all about Kawhi Leonard. Kawhi Leonard was saying, "I'm the best player in the league. I'm the best player in the league. I'm better than LeBron. I'm better than everybody." And for him to come up a game, and he just he was he just played bad. He didn't want to shoot. There was points in the games he did want to shoot. When he shot, he missed. 
he played terrible, just terrible performance. And it just, I, I'm glad because I think at least I can watch NBA games and I want to see my superstars play. Because you're paying a lot of money to go there. I just hate this attitude. We're just going to put scrubs. We're going to put the bench to play. And everybody pays their money for the tickets. And they think that's all well good. If that's it, then just play a 40-season regular season game. But I was really, I'm, I'm happy that load management showed that it didn't work. And maybe he should have played more because it was harder in the playoffs when you're playing every other game and he got too tired to play. But I really think this game seven was all about Kawhi Leonard and Paul George. And, uh, and just, again, I just was, I was sort of happy to see the result. You're listening to Ira on Sports. This is the True Oldies channel. Mike Balsamo here as well. Ira, you're right. I mean, they got to feel it's the ultimate letdown, but they deserve that letdown because of how they played, how they styled it, and they got beat by a team who shows up every night and just outworks you, and that's what happened. They got outworked. Um, I wanted to say that the Nuggets are going to be able to do the same thing to the Lakers in the Western Conference Final, but not looking like it so far, Ira. Game one wasn't even really that close. Again, but that's what they did. <laughs> that's what they did to the Clippers. Yeah. I mean, you come off a seven-game series, you have one game to rest, and suddenly you're playing, and they get totally blown out. It wasn't even close. I mean, there was a point in the third quarter that Lakers went on a 16-3 to run. Uh, unfortunately, you know, as a Heat fan, you're looking forward to the Lakers. Playoff Rondo emerges. What playoff Rondo is is Rajon Rondo with only great the regular season is an average basketball player. He was good maybe ten years ago, but in now every now and then, even when he was just good for the Celtics, he would become he'd average like seven, eight a game. So he's averaging 22, 23 games, shooting, draining threes, and then like the regular season, he just goes back to being just a passer. But this is playoff Rondo. I mean, he played. He finally was healthy. He came back at seven points, nine assists, two steals, no turnovers. And what he does is he lets LeBron be LeBron and doesn't have to have control of the ball all the time. And you have Davis, and he really knows how to find all these players. And just a tremendous uh, – Anthony Davis had 37 points, 10 rebounds. LeBron really didn't play that great a game, but he still had 12 assists and 15 points. But the idea that they also are using Dwight Howard. Now, Dwight Howard's played nothing. You know, like what? But now they have the size. I mean, the Lakers have shown that against the – Small ball of the Rockets. They could go small and beat the Rockets for uh, four games to one. And now they're going up against the Nuggets, who are a much bigger team with Jokic, and they're able to play Jokic. They have so many different players that can play it. And that first game was uh, was just a blowout. And that led into the second game. And, and it was interesting that coming into game two, they, they announced the MVP. And LeBron loses it to Giannis. And not just loses it, but he had 16 first blades exposed to 85 for Giannis. Now, this is his, I think, fourth time he's been the second, he finished in second place. He's won four MVPs. And, of course, as someone like LeBron, who was comparing himself to Michael Jordan, with the, the idea is that you don't want to just win four MVPs. You've got to win these. This hardware is really important. Winning titles is important. And I thought the voting was, was really interesting. Uh, Giannis was one, LeBron two, Harden was three, Doncic for Dallas was four, Kawhi five, Anthony Davis six, Chris Paul seven, Lillard was eight, Jokic nine. The first Eastern Conference player was Siakam at 10. Jimmy Butler, who might, if the Heat win the title, would be the MVP <laughs> of, the, of the finals. He was 11th, and Jason Tatum was 12th. So it's like, you know, very much of a favorite for, the, for an all-West uh, type series. But uh, again, in this, in this next game, it was like, it was just a weird type of game where the Lakers looked like they were dominant. The Lakers were, were up 60 to 50. Uh, Rondo was, was playing, playing fantastic as always. And Charles Barkley even grabbed, it's funny, he, he blasted Anthony Davis at halftime saying, boy, he wants to be a star. He should do something. And LeBron, LeBron was crazy. He started the game with 20 points. 
Like it seemed like in the first few minutes of the game, and then it scored like six the rest of the way. I don't know what he was doing the rest of the way, but uh, but then in the second half, it was really weird what Denver was. <laughs> Denver went crazy. First of all, they put in T.J. Dozier over Michael Porter Jr. So Michael Porter Jr. is the person we talked about. It was one of the best high school players who injured his back uh, and for went to Missouri and has sort of been in it and and been has now emerged as the third biggest star for for Denver. But they put P.J. Dozier was like the 11th in the, on the rotation. But I think mainly for defense. And he comes in and he's making these huge plays in the fourth quarter and playing great. And again, there's this Denver run. It's just unbelievable. And then LeBron had a turnover. Then he has an air ball. And, and Jokic does what Jokic does. He drains a three. <laughs> and I think if it wasn't for Dozier missing free throws, they were. I think he was one for five. They would have had this lead, uh, and but it was like every time, like eighty came down, scored. Joker come to, he joke with Joker with twenty seconds back to eighty down with twenty seconds left and scored to take the lead. And then the Lakers come down, they're down one. Caru- they throw the ball around and Caruso, Alex Caruso. You don't have LeBron, you have Anthony Davis. He's the one who takes the final shot. Like it's the craziest thing. And Kendall Pavlico gets the rebound with two seconds to go, but Murray just blocks it really fast, so it goes out of bounds. So they're running a last second play, and they run this last second play. And the idea was to get it into Anthony Davis right around the three-point lane who, who was going to throw it into LeBron. When they ran the play, for some reason, Plumlee for Denver just like stops and, and, and they have two guys guarding LeBron. Nobody's on Anthony Davis. He's wide open and you see Joker come at the last second and try to block the shot, but he drains a three for a, a, a game-winning shot. It was the first time the Lakers have had a game-winning shot since Robert Horry uh, when they beat Sacramento in 2000, I think the year 2002. Uh, just an amazing uh, ending for a game to go up 2 nothing. And when he made it, he shot, he shouted Kobe. He's a big, of course, big fan. Every Laker is and every basketball fan of Kobe Bryant. And the moment he made it, went in, he goes, Kobe. Uh, but uh, a big win for the Lakers and a big shot for Anthony Davis. Absolutely, it was. Ira on Sports, True Oldies Channel, Mike Balsamo here as well. We got to go to NFL here, Ira, and just run down some of the injuries we saw yesterday because I said earlier, this is going to go down as Black Sunday. I can't remember a one weekend of the NFL where I saw so many injuries and so many prominent ones. Well, how about the torn ACLs? Uh, Tavon Young for the Ravens, a cornerback, one of their head tore his ACL. Cortland Sutton, Denver's top wide receiver, tore his ACL. Uh, you have Nick Boza, the star for San Francisco 49ers, their top defensive lineman. He tore his ACL. Saquon Barkley, the star running back for the Giants, tore, tore his ACL. Of course, they're all out for the year with the torn ACL. But then you have like Christian McCaffrey, high ankle sprain, could miss many, many weeks. Drew Locke, the quarterback for, uh, for Denver, is a good, great young quarterback. He, he, he has an AC rotator cuff joint out at least six games, and, and it might be more. You should be really careful with that injury. I've seen some of those. We've seen some of these quarterbacks. Uh, they might not play him the rest of the year. And Tyrod Taylor for, for the Chargers uh, hurt his chest in warm-ups. I don't know how it happened, and he didn't even play. But, but generally it's these season-ending season end, injuries for these stars uh, that happen, and even uh, Devontae Adams for Green Bay got hurt. It's like one of those just a really sad week in terms of you really like to see Barkley run and McCafferty uh, play. And, and it's a shame because I was wondering, like the Steelers played the Giants on Monday night, and there wasn't one injury from that whole Monday night. You're like, wow, I mean, here they haven't had preseason, they haven't had anything there was no injuries and i think we just it was like fool's gold in terms of hoping about injuries you don't want to see anybody get injured and these players are out there and uh it's unfortunate what happened a week too absolutely it was but uh, let's get into it. we only have about 15 minutes left here on iron sports we got a lot of games to cover and the first one was uh, one of the most bizarre games i've seen in a long time and it could have been an easy dallas uh you know going down zero and two having to go play seattle and instead they do this 
freak onside kick that seems to still be spinning somewhere on the field. And Dallas picked it up and, and ended up winning this game, Ira. And I don't know if this says more about Dallas or more about Atlanta's D, but it was an interesting one. Yeah, I mean, the two numbers are this, is that when a team has been up 15 points with five minutes to go, uh, with five minutes to go, the record in the NFL is eighteen hundred and seventy-five and six. Um, it just and this is one where they they blew that lead. Uh, also, when a team has scores thirty-nine points with no turnovers, they're forty-four hundred and forty and zero. And Atlanta blew that. And here's a team that lost twenty-eight-three to New England in the Super Bowl, and they were cruising along in this game to the point where I want to show you about this onside kick. So, the, so the percent of onside kicks where it's down to like. Uh, two out of 32. Uh, it used to be 21%. You got onside kicks. 2018 was four out of 52. Last year was two out of 32. You can't, the reason is because they just kicked the ball. You can't run anymore. Yeah. You can't load up one side for injuries. So when Dallas scored, I'm watching this open. I'm at a bar outside in New York and I go and I'm like, okay, I, uh, I, I'm, there's no way they're going to get the onside kick, so I want to go back and see the rest of the U.S. Open. So I jump in a cab, and then people are calling me, like, did you win the Cowboy game? The moment they said that, I'm like, I can't believe they got the onside kick. And then you watch it on TV, and it was like the stupidest thing. They kicked the ball in their rolls, and any high school player, any college player, four Falcons just watched the ball. I and mean, it wasn't like one of these crazy kicks that just rolled, and they watched it, knowing that you could pick the ball up. That if the, the returning team could pick up the ball at any time. They could pick it up and go, it goes one yard, two yards. That's why nobody gets onside kicks. I cannot I mean cannot believe the Falcons special teams coach doesn't get fired. Complete disaster. It was complete disaster on defense. The fact that they just let Dak Prescott and the, and the Cowboys go up and down the field. I mean, Dak was 450 yards, a touchdown, ran for three touchdowns. The first time in the history of the NFL, a player had 450 yards and three rushing touchdowns in a game. Uh, but just a total... Uh, break down from the Falcons, and it's just like par for the course. And Matt Ryan is this, Matt Ryan's going to end up with one of the greatest numbers careers ever. And it's just I don't know if he's ever going to win the Super Bowl because they continually lose these games. And this is the craziest way to lose it. Absolutely, Iron. That's uh, you're right. Someone should almost lose a job. It, this reminds me of like the Donovan McNabb tie. Like a decade ago, like I didn't even know we could tie. Like this is the same thing. Do you guys not know you can pick that ball up at any time? The kicking team can't touch it till it goes ten yards, and all the Falcons players are waiting for it to reach that ten yard mark. Pick the darn ball up, Ira. It was just ridiculous. Um, one thing that should be mentioned, especially for fantasy players, uh, Calvin Ridley leads all receivers in touchdowns since he came into the league. In uh, Julio Jones's last sixty-one games, he has twenty-one touchdowns. So there's someone who's getting all the red, the red zone looks there on that team, and it's not Julio Jones anymore. I don't know how that's going to affect things fantasy wise, but it does need to be noted that Calvin Ridley gets a lot of that Matt Ryan look, and it's Matt Ryan. Yeah, he puts up 400 yards a week and can't get wins. Ira, it's just crazy. Um, so I I I. I I've been skeptical of New England. I thought they were going to just be terrible this year. I'm kind of on the Cam Newton thing, but still, I wasn't expecting them to hang this close with Seattle, let alone have a last play opportunity to win in what was a great Sunday night football game. Great game. Newton was from 400 yards, a touchdown. Uh, He rushed 11 times for 47 yards, two touchdowns. It's like, considering they're paying him a million dollars a year, uh, he's the best million-dollar-a-year player ever. I mean, just tremendous performance. Russell Wilson threw five touchdowns. Uh, I mean, one of those, that D.J. Metcalf pass, was the first touchdown that Stephon Gilmore, who's considered the best cornerback in the league, he's given up since 2018. But it was like one of those games where, where this New England had the ball at the end of the game, down five. Uh, Newton, great drive down there with, 20, with, a, with three seconds to go. They get the ball on the one-yard line, and as he had ran two touchdowns in, he tries to run the ball, and uh, L.J. Collier stops the play, makes a great, great touchdown. 
tackle on Newton and, and preserves the win. I mean, on the one yard line, what a game! Tremendous and great. And, and it, it was uh, sadly uh, James White, who was the running back for New England. His father was killed in an accident down here in Fort Lauderdale just uh, that same day, and his mom was also injured. Uh, had connections with Russell Wilson because Russell Wilson for Seattle, the quarterback, uh, had played with James White at, at Wisconsin, and they were really close friends. So it's you know, of course, White with New England and Brady uh, sent his condolences also to James White. So that was sad. Uh, from that perspective, but uh, but again, it was uh, it was one of those games where on a Sunday night it was just a great game to watch and just so much excitement. One other one thing to note for fantasy too, uh, we've seen Cam Newton now when the, when the Patriots are inside the eight yard line. It's two designed runs to Cam Newton on first and second down. So you, you and we were in a group, we were texting, and as soon as they get down there, you're like, Cam's about to run. And everyone knows it's coming, and you can't stop it. So that is something to watch out for uh, fantasy-wise. So something that I was not expecting, Ira, and they weren't even expecting it on the national TV broadcast, was all of a sudden, hey, wait, Justin Herbert is starting this game with the Chargers, and he almost beat Kansas City, and this is why I love the NFL. Yeah, it was one of those games where, where Kansas City, but I don't think we should be surprised that Kansas City starts out slow. They were down 14-6 at halftime, but now they've, they've been, four of the last five game wins have been doubled by having double-digit comebacks. Uh, this was a little more difficult in terms of how it was done. I mean, Mahomes, it was weird. There was some breakdown for Kansas City. Twice, they went to drive to, at the end of the game, and with 2.20 left, all they could get was a field goal from the drive. Uh, and, uh, and they didn't go, they didn't weren't able to score a touchdown. Even in overtime, they were forced to hit a 58-yard field goal. Now, they were closer. I mean, uh, Harrison Buckner is probably, the, besides Justin Turner, the greatest. I mean, anybody who, who has teams that have their field goal kickers mixed you know, must be jealous of Kansas City and of Baltimore because uh, Buckner, uh, he, had a, he had a 53-yarder, and they said it was, uh, it was, uh, it was uh, the time they called a timeout. Then there was one where there was an illegal procedure. But I still think that, again, I was a little not so impressed with Kansas City's performance because uh, they really have to look at how Baltimore's playing. And Baltimore's dominating the teams, and they're getting leads, and they're holding it. And if Kansas City thinks that they're going to go back to the Super Bowl and win the Super Bowl, I don't know if they have. I don't know if they're able to do that. And, and Kansas City. I mean, the Chargers had a ten-minute drive there in the fourth quarter where they held the ball, and Kansas City was able to get them off the field. So I think there's problems that Kansas City has to happen. And unless they're going to outscore these teams and score 40, 50 points a game, I think they're going to have some trouble winning these low-scoring, scoring games because their defense sometimes just can't can't stop the other team's offense. And it should be mentioned that ten-minute drive was to a rookie quarterback making his debut on two minutes' notice. So yeah, it's a little bit discouraging. Um, encouraging though, and you just brought them up is Baltimore. They Houston, the score doesn't look that bad, but Baltimore had them in the driver's seat the entire game. Well, it's the same thing. I mean, this is the broken record of how they were against Cleveland last week. Baltimore just gets out these leads. They just run the ball. They had 230 yards rushing to 50 to Houston. Um, they use Mark Ingram. I have J.K. Dobbins on a fantasy team from Ohio State. The rookie hardly carried the ball two times. Gus Edwards and Lamar Jackson. You have four people running the ball, and it's just it's just a point where their offensive line dominates, and uh, Baltimore's defense is great and just stops the other team. But but it's a it's a total ball control. I mean, these games are over fast. If you notice, the Baltimore, when they play, the games are like done in like two hours and 45 minutes. But Baltimore now looks like a, they were, like they were the best team. They have now 14 straight regular season wins. So that's how just Donald Dominant is. Once for that Tennessee, Tennessee loss last year in the playoffs, I mean, we might be talking to them about this team that just never loses. So, Ira, I brought up uh, Josh Allen last week and said to me he's like Russell Wilson light, the way he plays. And I saw a national writer come out and say Russell Wilson. I mean, Josh Allen is the next <laughs> Russell Wilson uh, just after that game. Amazing game from him. Miami didn't look that awful either. They had a shot to win this game. 
it's weird that they did have a shot, but Russell Wilson, I mean, Josh Allen had four, Russell Wilson, Josh Allen had 417 <laughs> yards, Pat, is his career high, four touchdowns. He's now had 36 career touchdowns, 14 against Miami. Uh, but it was, it, it was a big win. He's, he's playing great. Buffalo looks, Buffalo looks like, now look, the wing one's going to challenge them, but I, from the first two weeks, the Buffalo looks like the best team in the NFC East. Um, I was excited for the, for the, uh, Dolphins, I, I, as a big Penn State fan, I, was, I like to see Mike Gusecki get involved. I think it was night that he had eight catches, 130 yards, his best game ever as a Dolphin, uh, former number one pick. And Devontae Parker comes back and plays with his issue, whether he's going to be healthy or not, comes back. It just seems like they got to get this running game going. They, they threw the ball 47 times, the, the Finns did, and they only ran at 22. And I'd really like to, to, to see some sort of a, a balance on a, on a running game in order to make this going. And 11,000 fans. They could have had 13,000, but most of the fans, for people I know who were there, and they said most of the fans were Bills fans. <laughs> so, and even Josh Allen made that comment about that. But, uh, look, this is a rebuilding year for Miami, and it's one of those years where I think the Buffalo should be like, you know, all these other teams are saying, oh, do we got their quarterback? Cleveland's doubting if Baker Mayfield's a quarterback. Jets are certainly doubting Sam Darnell is their quarterback, but Buffalo knows that Josh Allen is their quarterback. So, um, by the way, if, if you didn't see the Mike Kosecki catch over the middle yesterday, best catch all season. Go back and, uh, and Google that because it was just incredible. Um, Tampa Bay and Carolina, everyone was ready to say Tampa Bay's done after last week, and they had an impressive win over Carolina. This was interesting. I saw a thing. It was the first matchup in 17 years where two coaches who were coached at the same college, Matt Rule and Bruce Arians, both coached at Temple University. Talk about a trivia question now. <laughs> but Tampa goes up 21 nothing. Carolina scored 17 points. Brady played much better than he did. Mike Evans had a big game. Uh, I was neat there. When I see Justin Watson, we had him on our show, uh, right, I guess right before COVID, uh, at the end of last year. Um, and he, he, he had two catches, 48 yards uh, for Tampa. But it was neat. They were able to get Fournette involved. Had a big, some big long runs, but I look. Everyone who's criticizing Tampa says, "Boy, they only won." Carolina's not that good. Uh, now Carolina loses McCaffrey, but I look. It's going to take time for the for the offense to go. Remember, Tampa did not have their best wide receiver, Chris Godwin, in this game, who was out with a with a sore shoulder. So uh, I think when he comes back, give Tampa time. Their offense is going to go. I think they're going to be very good, and I think Fournette shows that he's sort of you know this whole idea. I think it's going to be great that he's in that system. I think you're going to. And Tampa's defense is good. I mean, that's why I, I really think Tampa's going to win uh, the NFC and be in the Super. But uh, it just gives them time, I mean, in terms of these games. So uh, let's wrap it up here with Jacksonville and Tennessee. Minshew Mania has taken over the world, and rightfully so. This guy is just good. And Tennessee had a nice lead here, and Jacksonville really made this game competitive. It was a fun one. Well, he's. I mean, they have no players. They're starting James Roberts and Minshew. They're, they're, they got rid of all. They're seeing all the former Jacksonville players. We're mentioning them on these other teams that are all playing, and they're still hanging in these games. And Tennessee's really good. And Tennessee Berkeley has a great defense, and they let Minshew come back in the game. And everyone at Jacksonville's like, oh, we're going to get Trevor Lawrence. We're going to get Trevor Lawrence. I think Jacksonville's going to win four or five games. I don't think they have any chance to get Trevor Lawrence. They, they're, they're playing great. And uh, Tennessee, though, it's sort of nice to see. They usually get out to these slow starts, but now they're 2-0, and first time since 2008. And Ryan Tannehill, 239 yards, four touchdowns. They didn't really get the running game going, which is uh, surprising for Tennessee in terms of not running the ball well. But Tannehill played great. Um, it's concerned a little about their defense that they weren't able to hold him down. They were up 24-10, and the score was 30-30, uh, and they had two chances to take the lead. But uh, Gaskowski, finally for Tennessee, hit, hit a big field goal uh, for that victory. Yeah, I was really worried about Kostelski um, at this point after week one with the uh, all the misses, but he uh, redeemed himself totally in this one. Tonight, Ira, the New Orleans Saints are going to travel to Vegas to play the first game in Vegas. This is going to be exciting stuff. 
huge game. I mean, it's the 50th anniversary of Monday Night Football. I grew up, I mean, there's nothing more than I think about begging my parents to stay up and watch Monday Night Football. The, the, the idea that Pico Rosell said we should have a game on Monday Night on primetime, people thought he was insane in 1970. Uh, ABC takes it with Rune Arledge and Chet Forty. They, they, average, they put double the number of cameras. They put crazy guys like Howard Cristel and Don Meredith on uh, with Frank Gifford and then have this great show. And it becomes the, just the total staple. I mean, one of the, I saw one of the people who felt like it was one of the, the main reasons the NFL grew was the fact that this Monday Night Football was, was so tremendous. I mean, the Hard, the hard Rock has hosted it actually 36 times. Uh, I grew up, the fourth ESPN, this is where you got your highlights. You never saw the other games that happened on Sunday. You could see your game. Nobody showed the highlights until you actually watched the game on Monday night. And Cosell did his halftime highlights. They have all these celebrities that were showed up there. So it was, it was great. And this is their huge anniversary game. And I think opening up the Raiders Stadium with the Saints, uh, everything's about this game. It would be great if the fans were there and it was packed and it was super. But I'm excited for this game. And, and I think the Raiders are going to – I think you're going to see a team. Uh, I think Derek Carr, I think John Gruden, and this Ruggs. If, if Henry Ruggs uh, from Alabama – Stays healthy. I know he's a little injured not coming into this game, but I expect a huge game from Ruggs. So, and Josh Jacobs, a great running back. Uh, this is going to be great, exciting, and this is why look Raiders on Monday Night Football. That's the best thing. It's Iron Sports, True Oldies Channel. Mike Balsamo here. Let's go to college football, Ira, and uh, our Miami Hurricanes have been playing. I don't know if we're going to if we're loving the results so far, but they seem to be getting wins. Well, it was a good win at Louisville, 47-35. to Derek King, I think this, this, this game, when he hits UAB, you didn't know how good they were, but Louisville's a real team, and he looked like he was able to run the ball well, had 325 yards passing. Uh, I just, I mean, again, it was like one of those things where Miami's defense was terrible. Uh, they gave up 500 yards to Louisville, and then Miami, the stupid mistakes, 11 penalties for 85 yards. It seemed like they just couldn't put this game away, but still, it's nice to see Miami with a lot of offense, and now we're getting for... For the week after next, they're going to play Florida State's going to come to town. So, Ira, you want to hear something funny? The line, the, the, the point spread on Clemson versus Citadel was 49 and a half points. It was 49 nothing at the half and ended 49 nothing. Talk about a bad beat, but Clemson rolls. That's terrible. I mean, Clemson is just, I mean, it was one of those games that was weird, but it, it, I couldn't believe they didn't score. I mean, it was 49, I think, in the first, like, in the first couple of minutes of the second quarter, and then they didn't score. It was, it was I couldn't even watch the game on TV. But uh, it was, again, Clemson's phenomenal, and uh, it, uh, Trevor Lawrence is amazing, and their backups came in. But I just couldn't believe that. The, I think more shocking than anything is that uh, Dabo Sweeney was able to hold his own team from not scoring because they have so many talented players. You're expecting some of their backups, just as I uh, even said, you know, just romp the middle that they were going to break through and score some more points. What other uh, college games were you uh, focused on? Uh, I liked Central Florida had a Central Florida had a good win over Georgia Tech. I mean, this is one of those things where uh, Tech had beat Florida State last week, so it was nice that because Central Florida needs to have these type of games uh, in order to if they somehow get in the group of five. They were, I think, they had their best chance with the Big Ten didn't play because that might open up another spot for them. But I think it's to be hard. But it was like a good, it was still a, a, you know, a good win for them. Uh, Oklahoma State. I'll tell you what, the uh, the Big Twelve is is uh, having some trouble. I mean, they, they, Oklahoma State played Tulsa, and they were favored by 24 points, they're number 11 in the country, and they barely, barely won that game. And we talk about Chubba Hubbard, who was, people think was going to be for the Heisman. He was terrible. 30 carries for 93 yards. So I thought it was that game I was, uh, I was interested. Navy was down 24 nothing at halftime and came back and beat Tulane 27-24. Uh, Notre Dame just 
destroyed South Florida. They sort of got their at 52 nothing. They got their act together and, and played well. Uh, and uh, Pittsburgh's now 2-0. and I mean, Kelly Pickett, their quarterback, some people t- think could be one of the top, uh, like in the third or fourth round of the NFL draft, but they're 2-0 and and they beat Syracuse. Uh, but the key is that the Big Ten's going to be back at the end of October, and next week the SEC plays. I mean, at 12 o'clock you have Florida and Old Miss, at Kentucky at Auburn at 3:30 Mississippi State at LSU and then Georgia at Arkansas at seven o'clock Bama plays against Missouri Vanderbilt 6 a.m. Tennessee South Carolina and a uh, huge game I'll tell you what October 17th you know, two of the biggest games I know it's a couple weeks away LSU at Florida and Georgia at Bama one is at 3:30 and one is at eight but I think people are excited that the fact that now uh, the SEC is going to be back playing next week with the ACC and the Big 12. Ira, we've got uh, just a minute here for baseball, and here we are in the final week already. That was a really quick 70 days. Really quick seven days, and as I said, everyone was laughing at me. I said the, the Yankees are unbeatable, and they did. They, they ran off uh, 10 straight games before losing on Sunday night uh, to the Red Sox, but they set all types of records. They had uh, 18 runs in, uh, in, in three games, which broke the previous record by three. Uh, Luke Voigt is within, in the 50 games has set an end Yankees record, not a Yankee record. He's with Ruth, Mantle, and Ruth are the ones with Luke Voigt in, in that category. Uh, and most importantly for the Yankees, they got everybody back. They got Stanton playing, the judge is playing. Uh, you have the, uh, Clint Fraser's had eight home runs. Labor Torres is back. I mean, the gang is back and they're playing great. And this is, a, this is the Yankees have sort of messed around. I mean, they had lost 15 out of 20 games and to talk about turning it on when you have to. And, uh, they did. And that, and so Toronto's get the other wild card. White Sox, Twins, and Indians will be in there, and Oakland and the Astros. Remember, it's the three teams. That, the, the way they're going to do it is you're going to take eight teams, uh, the three winner, the three top two teams in each division, and then two wild cards, and then they'll play best out of uh, three games, and then that's the fun next week. And then the week after is the league championship series. They're going to be in Dallas and uh, in Houston and L.A. and San Diego, and those games that are going to be in a bubble per se. But they're only going to play one week for the, for the, the division series games, best out of five. Then they have the championship games, best out of seven. That's in one week. And then they go to the World Series. So in like three weeks, we're going to be at the World Series. So that's going to be a long, drawn-out playoff. Each week is going to be one round of the playoffs. And then in the National League, uh, look, Miami is in there. But, but it's a point where there's going to be – there's seven teams for four spots. Uh, Miami, the, the Miami's at 28-25. They are, they have a good, but the Phil's at 27-26. The Reds are 27-27. The, the Brewers are 500 also. The Giants are 500. So if Miami just wins a couple games, gets 500 this week, they're probably going to make the playoffs, but they play seven games. So if they blow this and don't make it, they could fall out of the playoff hunt. Uh, but we'll see. It'll be, it's going to be exciting. They have four games with Atlanta and three games at New York. So it's going to be tough, but it's going to be exciting come this final week to see from these teams, from the Giants, the Brewers, the Reds, the Cards, the Mets, Phils, and Miami, uh, which one of the uh, teams will emerge for the playoffs. So, uh, so far in the NHL, we are going to game two tonight. It's going to be Stars and Lightning. Of course, Dallas does lead this one one to nothing on another just absolutely ridiculous uh, series of play from their backup goalie, Anton Kudobin, uh, as we don't know what's going on with Ben Bishop, if we'll see him back, but they seem pretty comfortable. I am still going to take Tampa to win this series, even though they're down uh, one nothing. I look forward to them. I look, uh, I'm looking into them tying it up tonight, which should be good. And what else do we have before we wrap it up? I. 
just some auto racing. Uh, Kevin Harvick won at Bristol, uh, and uh, now he's won the ninth race of the season. He led 226 laps. Uh, now there's seven weeks left, and all the races will now be on Sunday on either NBC Sports or, N- or NBC. Uh, and uh, in Harvick and Hamlin and Keselowski are the top three. Bush is four, and, and uh, uh, Bush, I mean, uh, Harvick, Hamlin, and Keselowski. Uh, interesting thing about NASCAR, Michael Jordan is talking about teaming with Denny Hamlin and owning a team that Bubba Wallace will ride in. So in order to get Michael Jordan as an owner of a NASCAR team, he's been friends with Denny Hamlin for years, uh, one of the top NASCAR drivers. So it would be interesting if you got that lot of excitement if Michael Jordan gets involved. And then in the UFC, uh, an amazing match on, on Saturday, Tyrone Woodley and Colby Covington uh, for the welterweight. Both had – Woodley had been the champion, has now lost twice since he's been the champion. Colby Cunningham fought for Usman, lost the championship, and is considered the number two contender, uh, but just totally destroyed Tyrone Woodley. It wasn't even close. Uh, and a huge win for Colby Cunnington, and hopefully get a rematch with, with Usman or Masvidal or something like that. Coming up next week, big UFC fight, 253, uh, as a, at Asama – versus Costa. Costa is a 29-year-old Brazilian who is super exciting, whatever. This could be a, it looks, people people think he's going to take this title, so it's going to be a really exciting UFC match, UFC 253. We are out of time. I want to thank Mark Canizaro so much for stopping by. On behalf of Ira, I'm Mike. Let's talk next Monday night. It's Ira on Sports.